We are in a series we're titling Keeping Christmas, and uh, this morning our scripture reading is Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Would you stand with me and let's read that together? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. As I mentioned a moment ago, the theme we've chosen this year for um, these seasons of Advent and Christmas is simply keeping Christmas. Um, clearly, there's no command given in the pages of Scripture that we should celebrate the birth of the Savior, and neither are there any prescriptions in its pages for those who may wish to do so, which means, in a sense, that the whole thing is entirely optional for us. And uh, if you are among those who would like to just blow the whole thing off, um, you can do that and still be in the will of God. Uh, but for those who choose to do so, the two basic questions we are raising and, and seeking to answer, at least to a significant degree in this series, uh, are first, what should it mean for us who claim to be biblical Christians to keep or to rightly observe Christmas? And second, are there any meaningful models in the pages of Scripture itself that provide us with clues as to the priorities and practices that might lead us to a deeper, more satisfying, and spiritually nourishing observance. What does it mean to keep Christmas? I was, I was taken this week by the introduction to a book of readings on Advent and Christmas titled Waiting for the Light. And here's how the editors opened the book. Though Advent, meaning literally arrival, has been observed for centuries as a time to contemplate Christ's birth, most people today acknowledge it only with a blank look. For the vast majority of us, December flies by in a flurry of activities, and what is called the holiday season turns out to be the most stressful time of the year. It is also a time of contrasting emotions. We are eager yet frazzled, sentimental yet indifferent. One minute we glow at the thought of getting together with our family and friends. The next we feel utterly lonely. Our hope is mingled with dread our anticipation with despair. We sense the deeper meanings of the season, but grasp at them in vain. And in the end, all the bustle leaves us frustrated and drained. Even we who do not experience such tensions, who genuinely love Christmas, often miss its point. Content with candles and carols and good food, we bask in the warmth of familiar traditions, in reciprocated acts of kindness, and in feelings of general goodwill. How many of us remember the harsh realities of Christ's first coming, the dank stable, the cold night, 
the closed door of the inn. How many of us share the longings of the ancient prophets who awaited the Messiah with such aching intensity that they foresaw his arrival thousands of years before he was born? We are often so dulled by superficial distractions that we are incapable of hearing any voice within, let alone listening to it. Consequently, the feeling we know as Christmas cheer lacks any real connection to the vital spirit that radiated from the manger. Perhaps you'll agree with me that to contemplate the mystery of what God did in sending his son to earth and the implications of this reality for the whole of our lives is all by itself more than enough to engage and enthrall our minds and hearts, not only through the seasons of Advent and Christmas, but for the rest of our lives. This, I think, is what it means to keep Christmas. And it's for this reason that I asserted last week that uh, only a Christian can truly keep Christmas. Now, only Christians affirm these truths about Jesus, uh, though the power of it all staggers our mortal minds. Uh, so my challenge to you in, in this season of the year is to engage and grapple with the question, what will it mean for you as one who claims to be Christian to celebrate Advent and, Chris, and Christmas in ways that are distinctly Christian, um, that draw you into deeper reflection on what God was doing as he sent his son into the world, and how he went about it, why he did it in the first place, and that move you then to act in ways that are both, both biblical and responsible. You're reasonable people. You're thoughtful people. Um, and so I know you're up to this. This morning I want to invite you to consider as Exhibit B uh, for what it means to keep Christmas, Joseph of Nazareth, Mary's betrothed husband. What kind of man was Joseph? Uh, for most of us, he's a bit of a mystery, isn't he? Um, I once heard someone say, Joseph seems nothing more than a prop. And, and unless we take time to, to read, to think, to comprehend something of the meaning of Joseph's role, uh, that's what we're kind of left with. Joseph as a prop. Um, a, a mere functionary, not not really an active player. Uh, we see him represented there in our nativity scenes, but sometimes he's just filling space. Uh, we have two nativity scenes in our home at Christmas, and uh, when I had this thought this week about him, I went and just kind of looked at the expressions on, on Joseph's face in both of those nativity scenes, and he's just like somewhere far away. Um not really present. We saw last week that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, only speaks two sentences in the entirety of the New Testament. Uh, but from Joseph's lips, there is not a single word. Uh, he's present through the nativity and childhood of Jesus up to age 12. And then he just poof, disappears from the narrative of Scripture without a mention which has given rise to the speculation that Joseph may have been substantially older than Mary and died when Mary was still young. Um, but all we can say about that is that it is speculation. Whatever the case may have been, I've always felt that his sudden unexplained absence from the gospel narratives being neither mentioned nor mourned in any way 
um, by the gospel writers seems seems like something of a diss, as if Joseph really didn't matter after all. Um, so who was Joseph? What do we know about him? Why does he matter? The first thing we learn about Joseph in the very first verse of the New Testament is that Joseph was an Israelite of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David the king. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's reinforced in Luke 2 by Joseph taking the pregnant Mary with him to Bethlehem, the city of David, his ancestral home for the census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus. Because it says there in those familiar words in Luke 2, he was of the house and lineage of David. Uh, If the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3, in fact, represents his lineage through Mary, as most biblical scholars believe it is, uh, then we can conclude that that she also, Mary, was a descendant of David. though not through the kingly line of Solomon as Joseph was, but through another of David's sons whose name was Nathan. And Nathan is listed among David's sons in Second Samuel 5.14. He appears in Jesus' genealogy at Luke 3.31. We also know that Joseph was a builder by trade. Uh, more accurately, he was in Greek a tectone. Um, that doesn't mean he was in the tech industry, although one could say that. Uh, a tectone. The word doesn't just describe a carpenter, uh, even though virtually every Bible translation or paraphrase says carpenter. Uh, but it can mean a builder. Uh, it can mean a carpenter. It can mean a craftsman, an artisan. Um, uh, my wife and I watch a, a series of videos from Israel on YouTube, and uh, one um, archaeologist speculated that that Joseph may have been involved in um, an industry that was right there in Nazareth of making stone uh, cups and mugs and plates and goblets and all out of stone. It's abundantly clear from both the landscape and from archaeological excavations that the primary building material in Israel in the first century was not wood, (laughs) but stone. Not that there was an absence of wood, but it seems logical that that a tradesman like Joseph would have been as skilled in building with stone as with wood. Uh, He was probably a stonemason as well as a carpenter. Third, we understand from the scriptures very loudly and very clearly that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. And uh, betrothal was uh, kind of like engagement today, but quite unlike it in most ways. From the time of the betrothal, the couple was regarded as husband and wife uh, by the community. And accordingly, a a betrothal could only be dissolved by death or by a formal divorce. Uh, The betrothal period was usually one year in length that served at least two purposes. First, uh, during the year of betrothal, if there was any kind of impurity, immorality, indecency, unfaithfulness in either of the partners, the bride or the groom, uh, it was believed that over the course of a year, it probably was going to be revealed, and if necessary, the betrothal terminated. Secondly, during that year of betrothal, it was the responsibility of the groom to uh, prepare a place for the couple to live after the wedding. And most often, that home the husband would prepare was just an addition to his father's house. Um, 
a room added on to that home. So that when the wedding day finally came, the groom would come triumphantly, surrounded by an entourage of happy friends and family, uh, to take the bride home to uh, the place he had prepared in his father's house where they would consummate their relationship and then where they would start their life together. And this is, by the way, the familiar background imagery behind Jesus' promise to his disciples in the upper room in John 14. Um, Jesus was figuratively representing himself as a bridegroom when he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Words of love and uh, words of promise. Verse 19 adds forth that Joseph was a just man. And I want to just kind of linger here for just a little while. The Greek word translated just in verse 19 of chapter 1 is dikaios. Dikaios is also translated righteous as it describes that which conforms to the will of God, um, that which conforms to God's righteous standard. And what it tells us about Joseph is that, as we observed last week regarding Mary, he also had chosen his focus. Um, which was to live his life in such a way as to please God and to merit God's approval. And a Hebrew word that's, that describes a man like Joseph is tzaddik, T-S-A-D-I-Q, for those who are taking notes. T-S-A-D-I-Q, tzaddik. The label tzaddik is given to a man who uh, has earned a reputation for studying, learning, meditating on, keeping the law of God as it's written in the books of Moses. In Joseph's world, there was no reputation more desirable than tzaddik. Um, Psalm 119 expresses the heart of a tzaddik. I imagine that these four verses may represent Joseph's heart for God and his word uh, out of that massive chapter, these four verses. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. I really think that that, those four verses express uh, probably the heart of Joseph in relationship to God and his word. Well, what does Joseph have to teach us then about keeping Christmas. And again, as I said last week, from a purely historical perspective, it may seem a silly question because, of course, he was there. Uh, He experienced, uh, in a manner second only perhaps to Mary, uh, the shocking, disruptive, life-altering impacts of having been chosen by God to be the earthly father of his son, Yeshua, Jesus. Consider with me, first of all, um, the intensive moral and spiritual processing that I think Joseph must have been forced to engage. First, as he received some unexpected and perhaps unwanted news, and next, as this unexpected role was thrust upon him, and then as he rose up and acted faithfully and responsibly, Joseph, we might say, chose obedience. Joseph chose obedience. Consider the dilemma that confronted him. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, uh, 
before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, how we read um, this verse matters. When Matthew says she was found to be with child, we probably shouldn't interpret his words in the sense that she was in any way attempting to conceal the fact uh, of her condition and was then found out. Uh, I don't think that's the thrust here. As we saw last week, she she had already made that resolute decision uh, quite apart from uh, whatever Joseph um, might decide to do, but quite apart from Joseph or anyone else to fulfill the role assigned to her in God's agenda for bringing his son into the world. Instead, we should probably read it simply as it became obvious that she was pregnant. Um, I think that when she returned from uh, the hill country of Judah, from the home of Elizabeth, uh, she probably was sporting a baby bump. Um, However, when we read that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, we might place in parentheses the words, wink, wink, <laughs> wink, wink. Why? Because at this point in the narrative, that fact is not yet in evidence with anyone but God, the angel Gabriel, Mary herself, and Elizabeth, her relative. That the child in Mary's womb is from the Holy Spirit, from everyone else's perspective, is her claim, her story, her explanation. Right, Mary. From the Holy Spirit. See, her pregnancy was nothing short of scandalous. But we read in verses, uh, in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And Joseph was, was thrust into a process of carefully considering his options. He needed to find a resolution that complied with the law of Moses because that was the kind of man he was, but also one that he could actually live with, that his conscience could deal with. The law offered three options to Joseph in this circumstance. According to Deuteronomy 22, when it was revealed that a betrothed virgin had engaged in sexual intercourse with a man who was not her husband, Capital punishment was prescribed, not only for the woman, but for the the man as well. Death by stoning. So Joseph's first option, according to the law, would have been to have Mary stoned to death, though under Roman law, such death penalties were rarely carried out. A second option available to Joseph was to subject Mary to a very public divorce that would shame and humiliate her, exposing her guilt while preserving his own reputation in the eyes of the community. But there was also a third option, and that was a very quiet divorce. And I actually find it remarkable that this was the option Joseph chose. Um, It says a great deal about his character, about his love for Mary, that he was unwilling to publicly shame her, in spite of the fact that all of the evidence indicated that he was the injured party. Now, think of of what this tells us about Joseph's emotional maturity, his spiritual maturity. Joseph considered what God thought of him as more important than what others thought of him. And he seems to have regarded his personal integrity 
as more important than his public reputation. And in this, it seems that to me that Joseph embodies the words of Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Marcy and I have been married 43 years. And and I married her because I thought that this said, do justly love Marcy and to walk humbly with your God. (laughs) Here I am 43 years later realizing I read it wrong. (laughs) Because Joseph's great desire in life was to do justly, he gave serious consideration to the requirements of justice. He surveyed his options according to the law of God, and because he loved mercy, he chose the most merciful of the options before him, which was to divorce Mary quietly, minimizing as much as possible the inevitable humiliation, the inevitable shame she would experience. And and in doing these things, he knew that he personally then could go on walking humbly, walking submissively before God in full integrity with a clear conscience before God, before Mary, and before the community. But there was a fourth option available to Joseph, which he had not yet considered, probably never would have were it not for an amazing dream. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What did the angel say? Well, he confirmed three facts that Mary, I think, apparently had already shared with Joseph. One, that that which is conceived in her really is from the Holy Spirit, not just a cockamamie story from a teenage girl. She is going to bear a son. Blue confetti at the reveal party. His name is to be Jesus. And Joseph, as his earthly father, would have the prerogative of naming him. You are to name him Jesus, Joseph. Not a suggestion, it's a command direct from the throne of the Most High. But the angel added for Joseph what he had not apparently told Mary, that the reason his name is to be Jesus is that he is coming to save his people from their sins. The Hebrew name Yahashua or Yeshua means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. The ultimate demonstration, though, that Joseph uh, was the real deal as a godly man is expressed in verses 24 to 25. When Jesus woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You know, I I am so impressed 
with Joseph. I shared with our life group this week that in my preparations for this morning's message, the chorus of an old song kept coming to mind. What a man, what a man, what a man, what a very good man. Um, it's actually all I knew of the song. You know how that goes. You hear a chorus, you hear something on the radio, and that, that sticks. Uh, Noel Nordquist Googled it uh, for me and discovered it was recorded by Salt and Peppa in 1993. Um, uh, trust me when I say that I cannot recommend the rest of the song. <laughs> so don't hold me responsible, please. Uh, but the words of that chorus fit Joseph so well. What a man. What a man. What a man. What a mighty good man. God gave to Mary to be her husband. What a mighty good man God had prepared to be Jesus' earthly father. And when he woke that next morning, he got up and took care of business. He did all that the angel of the Lord had commanded him. So the word I'm suggesting this morning, as we look to Joseph as a model of what it means to keep Christmas, is the word protection. Protection is probably not a word most of us immediately associate with Christmas, but, but bear with me here. In every scripture passage where we read about Joseph's activities in relationship first to Mary and then to Jesus, Joseph emerges as a protector. Joseph protected Mary. We first see him protecting her dignity. His his first impulse, as we saw, was to act in such a way that, that she would not be subject to public humiliation. His first thought was not of his own reputation, but of her predicament, of protecting her in her heart, in her mind, and in her body. And next we see Joseph protecting Mary's reputation in response to the prompting of the angel by by marrying her, by taking her as his wife, by taking that step. Don't miss this, that he protected Mary from being an outcast. And by doing that, he willingly took to himself whatever shade others would cast on Mary. He he chose to become a co-recipient of whatever gossip or scorn would be heaped on Mary by those who had no understanding whatsoever of what God was doing. Joseph also protected her virginity. Luke tells us in verse 25 that Joseph kept Mary a virgin. That is, he abstained from sexual relations until she had given birth to Jesus. Would have been his right as a husband on that very first night of their marriage to have had sexual relations with her. Verse, verses 24 to 25 of Matthew 1, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, there are some who claim that Mary was perpetually a virgin. That's the, the doctrine of the Catholic Church, for example. But this is not at all what the Bible says. Um, Matthew directly connects the birth of Jesus from the womb of Mary with Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 that a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Joseph kept her a virgin until Jesus was born. The clear implication of Matthew 125 is that from that time on, they had normal sexual relations. And the evidence of it is contained in Matthew 13, as well as in Luke's gospel. When Jesus taught in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, they responded with astonishment at his teaching. And they asked, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? See, according to Matthew's account, then Jesus had at least four younger brothers who are named. And it says sisters. So there are at least two younger sisters who are unnamed, all of them the children of Joseph and Mary. And Jesus protected her en route to Bethlehem, didn't he? You think about that, 90-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have taken anywhere from four to six days. And Mary's late in her pregnancy. Um, what do you think, ladies, would that would have been a little uncomfortable in those days? Um, we don't know she was on the on a donkey, although everybody paints it that way, right? Um, might have been in a wagon or on horseback. We, we just don't know. Um but it would have been uncomfortable, to say the least. Her, her physical condition, combined with the discomforts, the dangers of the road, required that Joseph would have watched over her as they traveled. Because um, now, he's the father of the Son of God, right? <laughs> Don't mess up, Joseph, on the trip to Bethlehem. Jo- Joseph then protected her through her labor and delivery. And you think that's a stretch to say that, Remember Luke 2, 6, and 7, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. It it would have been on Joseph to find them a place to lodge and for Mary to give birth to Jesus. And and that circumstance circumstance dictated that it was in a place where... um, livestock were kept was unfortunate to say the least. But Joseph was there. He was seeing to all the arrangements and and making sure that she and her baby were kept comfortable. Matthew implies that Joseph and Mary remained in Bethlehem for at least two years after Jesus' birth. Joseph probably found gainful employment there. I I don't think he was in a hurry to return to the gossip and the rumors and the slanders of Nazareth. And in this also, he protected Mary. And then consider his protection of Jesus. Joseph protected Jesus. It's recorded in chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel that Joseph had another dream in which an angel of the Lord appeared to him, warning of the intent of King Herod to search for the child Jesus in order to put him to death and directing him to take his family to Egypt. Another disruption, another displacement, another inconvenience. But Joseph did as he was told by the angel. He stayed in Egypt until they had received news of Herod's death. And and then again, an angel appeared to Joseph, directing him to return with his family to Israel. And then it says there that when Joseph learned that Archelaus, who was Herod's son, a man with an equally murderous reputation as his father, was reigning over Judea, he bypassed Judea and returned to their hometown of Nazareth. 
in these events, it's important, I think, that we understand the deeper significance of Joseph's protective role. And, and it may have been a, a bit of a mind bender, even for Joseph, to say, I'm in charge of protecting my protector, the one who watches over Israel. I'm the one responsible to protect him. But understand this, that that as you you look at your very serene Christmas cards, when all is calm and all is bright, that, that Joseph was drawn into the cosmic spiritual battle of the ages and played an essential role in protecting Jesus from the early attacks of Satan. From the vantage point of earthbound humans, Joseph was protecting the toddler Jesus from Herod's genocidal strategy against baby boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem for the purpose of preserving his power and his dynasty. But from the vantage point of heaven, The genocide that was perpetrated by Herod was the beginning of the attempt of Satan to destroy the incarnate Son of God. In Revelation chapter 12, John records the scene from the vantage point of the heavenly realms. Revelation 12, beginning of verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now this is probably not a description of Mary personally. It's probably a representation of Israel generally. Verse 2, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Stars of heaven are reference to angels and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now that expression, one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron is 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 found several times in the Old Testament. It's always a reference to Messiah. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Merry Christmas. You see, what was going on behind the scenes was something that Joseph got swept up in. And Joseph fulfilled his responsibility to protect Jesus. He also fulfilled his responsibility as Jesus' earthly father. And it's clear that Joseph was a provider, he was a protector, but he was also a godly model and a faithful teacher of Jesus and presumably uh, of all of his children. How do I know that? Well, one of the first things we see Joseph doing in relationship to Jesus is being observant of the law. Luke 2.21 records that on the eighth day of Jesus' life, Joseph had him circumcised according to the law of Moses and gave him the name Jesus. You say, well, every Jewish father did that. Right. My point exactly. That Joseph 
fulfilled his responsibilities in relationship to Joseph, in obedience to his God and the law of God. Verses 22 to 24 shows them coming to Jerusalem 40 days after Jesus' birth for the ritual of purification that's prescribed in Leviticus 12, 1 through 8. We read at Luke 2, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. We're going to return to that text two weeks from today. Verse 41 of Luke 2 is a commentary uh, on just how devout Joseph and Mary were and the environment in which Jesus was raised, where we read, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year. Not everyone did that. Every year at the Feast of Passover, many did that. Not all did that. We also know that Joseph was a faithful teacher and mentor for Jesus. It may seem strange (laughs) to think of a mere man like Joseph teaching a child in his home who was the eternal son of God. I mean, how, how do you teach a child about creation when he's the one who did it? You know, and how do you, how do you teach animal sounds to the one who made them? Hard to imagine. It might have been at times, uh, my, I, th- I think there must have been moments when Joseph said, what am I doing? <laughs> and, and yet we can be confident that because Joseph was a, was a faithful, observant Jew, uh, he did that. Uh, the command of God through Moses in Deuteronomy 6 applied to every Jewish father. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the responsibility of a Jewish father, and guys, our responsibilities today, whether we're fathers or grandfathers or adoptive fathers, our adoptive grandfathers are just good old friends, is to do this, is to do this. But it's also in our homes to create an environment in which kids are constantly learning. Kids are constantly reminded of who God is and what he requires of us. So feel free in your imagination to picture Joseph, ful- Joseph fulfilling that role day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, as Jesus grew. See, I don't think we should minimize the effect of Joseph's influence when we read in Luke 2.40 that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And in verse 52 of chapter 2 of Luke, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. It's a mystery, isn't it? And yet Joseph was a part of that process in Jesus' life. And I really believe that the saying in Proverbs 27 is, 20 verse 7 is reflected in the character and influence of Joseph. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. What a great description of the kind of 
man, what a man, what a mighty good man. Joseph really was. Well, how do we bring this home? As we think about protecting our families through this Christmas season, how can we follow Joseph's example and keep Christmas by protecting our loved ones? What does that even look like? Well, it almost goes without saying that we'll do everything we can to protect our family members physically, right? I mean, that, that's just a given. But but what other areas of needed protection are especially important at this time of year? Uh, let me just suggest three areas. I, I think, first of all, and I'm going to speak to dads here primarily, but moms as well, we need to protect our families intellectually, give attention to their minds, to their mental processing. And what I want to just strongly urge you to do, because it can get lost in in the ways that we keep that other thing that's not Christmas, but that happens to us this month. We can forget simply to read and discuss the story of Christmas in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. Um, Take time to help your kids understand the real story. When I was in youth ministry, we used to use this kind of wacky uh, Christmas knowledge inventory that just quizzed uh, kids on things in the story and and how many of them just utterly failed. Um, And, of course, we laughed about it, but um, I, I inwardly cried because I realized how little we really know the story. And how little parents are doing in their homes to to tell the story, to read the story, to study the story, to reinforce the story. Read and discuss the biblical prophecies regarding the coming of Christ. Um, There are abundant websites that give a a long listing of, of Old Testament prophecies regarding who Messiah was, from whom he would be descended, where he would be born, and and more. Utilize an Advent or Christmas devotional guide like uh, this one that we're handing out. If you didn't get one of these yet, we're one per family until until we have we realize we have extras. But uh, John Piper, real bite-sized devotionals, really easy to use, really uh, really solid. Um, I hope that you might use something like that with your children. Invite your family members to to freely express their doubts. Really? Really, Dad? (laughs) That really happened? You really believe that? What are you, nuts? Uh, Why not take time to to say, you know, what confuses you about this story? What questions do you have about this story? What what do you doubt about this story? Um, Trust me, they have questions and they have doubts. Uh, Be honest about your own doubts or things you don't understand. Uh, Seek answers if if you can't answer their questions. on your own. Uh, my phone number is on the website. If you have a question, call me. Share with your family what you are learning and thinking about as you interact with God's Word. Play Christmas music in your home that centers on the biblical story. As President Biden says, play the record player at night. But but play that Christmas music in your home that, that tells the real story. Decorate your homes in ways that draw your family members' thoughts to the to the wonder of what God did in sending his son to the earth to be our savior. Protect your family's minds. 
Protect your family morally. Give attention to their hearts. And one of those areas that I think is extremely important for families at this time of year is is the area of financial morality and financial ethics. You know, Christmas can be a time that um, when appeals to greed and materialism kind of reach their peak, don't they? Um, So I would encourage you as parents to, to critique out loud together the commercials you're seeing online, commercials you're seeing on television, the messages that they convey, the desires to which they're appealing, the values that they're expressing, uh, how they are or are not consistent with the values of the kingdom of God. One of the things I tried to do, I I sometimes got yelled down in my home, was just to argue with commercials. And it's like, oh, Dad. Um, Not a bad thing, though. Talk openly about what your family can and cannot afford with regard to gifts and, and other financial expenditures. You know, there were a lot of times when our kids were growing up when, and they grew up uh, in schools with a lot of um, classmates who were pretty affluent. And there are things that those kids got that our kids just didn't. And, and, and the kids would say, well, why? Why can't I have? Well, first of all, we belong to God. 10% of our, of our income goes to him. And some of those things you don't really need, you know. Some of those things might lead you to places you don't want to go. As Dave Ramsey says, sometimes the four words that kids and adults alike most need to hear are, we can't afford it. Don't blow your budget at Christmas so that you're regretting it by New Year's. Model financial responsibility and integrity for your kids. Another area that just has really um, impressed me this year is um, the need to protect our families in the area of sexual morality and ethics. Um, be careful about what you watch on television and, and the sexual messages you allow yourself and your family to digest without critique. Um, many, many of the movies that come out at this time of year uh, that are regarded as romantic stories feature themes that promote sexual immorality. That, that promote premarital and extramarital sexual relationships. And even the Hallmark Channel, I've noticed, is now including homosexual relationships as standard features in all of their new movies. Sorry, ladies. I've noticed that many recently released commercials are now including homosexual relationships, showing men kissing men and women kissing women. So be careful about the messages and the images that you allow to fill the airspace in your home and to fill the minds of your children. Finally, protect your family spiritually. Protect them spiritually. Give attention to their souls. You know, there are four essential investments that each of us must make if we're going to grow spiritually. You can build these investments into the fabric of the life of your family in order to protect protect them spiritually. And the first is prayer. Prayer. Make it a, a personal daily habit to pray for and with your family, even if it's just at bedtime or at the table before meals. If that's all you can fit in, don't miss the opportunity. Make prayer a regular focal point for your family life. You know, Jesus prayed for us, and he's interceding for us right now before the Father. Uh, 
And as he prayed for us in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So here we are in the world, and as Christians, we all have a common adversary. Your children have an adversary. Pray for each of your family members that God will protect them from the evil one. The second essential investment is to read and study and meditate on God's word, the Bible. And again, make it a regular habit to read the Bible regularly on your own and with your family. Uh, Choose age-appropriate Bibles, uh, age-appropriate study materials for children, teens, and adults in your home. Put them to use. The third essential investment is fellowship with other believers. When when believers come together to encourage each other, uh, to build each other up, in the Lord, to instruct each other, to motivate each other, to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, there is no comparable experience. You will not have that experience at home in your pajamas in front of the television. If you want to protect your family spiritually, commit yourself and them to regular, intentional relationship building with other believers. And that means, among other things, that you're going to make a commitment to be regular in your church attendance. Because this is where the magic happens in terms of building community with others, and there's nothing that can replace it. The fourth essential investment is worship. Worship. There's spiritual power in worship. When God's people begin to worship him, there are at least four effects, and these are described in various places in God's word. First, God is enthroned, the scripture says, on our praises. He is exalted in our hearts. He's exalted in our minds. He's exalted in our church. Secondly, the demons just flee. Uh, They're not crazy about hanging around when God's being glorified. Third, our hearts are lifted up and encouraged. And fourth, the church is united Spiritually, there's something about corporate worship when we come together that supernaturally draws us together. All four of those investments are investments you can make also in the privacy of your home. All of them. So let me conclude with this. Joseph is a model of protection. Protection is a theme of the Christmas story. It's up to you to choose your focus. How will you keep Christmas? Mary points us to contemplation, Joseph to protection, and next week those crazy shepherds in the fields outside Bethlehem will point us to celebration and proclamation. So I hope you won't miss it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you today for the model of Joseph for the mighty good man that you made him to be and for the life that he lived, whether long or short, we don't know. But Lord, um, thank you for him. Thank you that you entrusted your son Jesus to him, to his care, to his um, oversight, to his protection. And Lord, may we in this season protect our families, our loved ones, in all the ways that we are capable of doing. Lord, we know that uh, Satan would love to just dilute this whole season, and he is very effective at doing it. But Lord, may we as Christians, as those who bear your name, 
be ones who keep Christmas in ways that are honoring to you. And we pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.